The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Holly, it's, it's, it's great because each and every week we have an opportunity to talk to somebody. And I mean, it's been five years and we're on six radio stations, you know, different podcast platforms. And there's always somebody each week who's like, oh, you need to talk to insert person here. Which I love because everyone has their own story. I love how everyone is so unique. I mean, God says he created everyone differently. We all have our own gifts and everyone has their own journey. And there is so much to learn from our brothers and sisters. So I'm really excited about today's conversation. Yeah. So our our guest this week, an activist, a writer, a storyteller, and oh, so much more. Terrence Lester, my friend, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited about being here. Um, Really grateful uh, for each opportunity I get to to just speak and uh, meet new people. The hardest question is usually the first one. And so we like to ask the skill testing question. Terrence, who are you and where did you come from? Yeah. So my name is Terrence. Uh, I am from Atlanta, Georgia. And I like to think of myself as a person who is deeply committed uh, to ensuring that people who are unseen and unheard are made visible and um, uh, have an opportunity to have their voices heard. And so I'm a servant leader. Were you born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia? I was born and raised. I'm not a transplant. I've been here my entire life. I, I grew up here. And this is where my family stays right now. So I have a, a wife of almost 16 years and mm. I have two beautiful kids. Um, my daughter's name is Zion. She just made the JV soccer ball team. So Nice. And, and my son's name is uh, Terrence the second. So the world has two of us. Nice. What was life like growing up in Atlanta and, and area? Yeah, I mean, life was... Uh, very hard. Um, you know, I am a, a black male uh, growing up in the deep south in a city that is considered the black Mecca of mm-hmm. the United States of America, uh, as um, it has many uh, historical factors and features of this great city. I mean, a lot of the civil rights movement where it was birthed here. Uh, Martin Luther King's father pastored a church. He was a pastor at a church here. Um, I have many friends who were kind of reared in the Atlanta way of doing things, uh, which Atlanta is totally different now uh, culturally uh, because there are a lot of people traveling to, to this city and moving here. But yeah, I mean, life was hard. I grew up in very urban uh, area, a part of town, uh, but it also contained, you know, a great sense of uh, cultural and family values, right? Um, where I got a chance to see my grandmother and my grandfather uh, maintain their marriage for uh, what seventy years. Wow! Uh, until my yeah, until my grandfather passed a, a few months ago, um, I got a chance to you know be a part of family reunions with my. Uh, grandfather, he was kind of like an organizer of of always wanting to get the family together. Um, I grew up watching my grandmother cook in the kitchen and kind of adopted that as a hobby. Uh, it's kind of like what I do right now to as a stress reliever. And yeah, I mean, all of the statistics that you would think of uh, growing up, black and male, um, but I had a, a loving mother who showed me tough love 
very early on and um, people get a chance to see a lot of the fruit of that today. Incredible. It's um, always interesting hearing from the the Atlanta area talking about uh, being black in America. We are Canadian. And so, you know, the, it's a little different here, but you still deal with some of those situations. And so um, for you over the years, have you noticed a positive change in how the community um how the community unites together and just your experience being a, a black man in America. We've seen a lot of um, advancement in, in terms of black culture. Uh, we've seen more black films uh, hit the airways with, um, you know, some of the cast having leading roles uh, that are black. Um, we've seen a lot of um, uh, persons kind of have this access to upward mobility, but in essence, there is a large part of uh, Black America that still deals with the residue from systemic injustice uh, that has been done to Africans in America over the last, you know, 400, 500 years. And so um, it's, it's um, unique to see uh, and celebrate all of the achievement, um, all of the Black joy, all of the, the access um, and the representation that we see uh, while still realizing that there's so much work to do. I mean, we're just coming off the, the tale of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Amar Arbery, and uh, situations that happened literally in the pandemic uh, that uncovered uh, much disparity in the United States and around the world, but also it uncovered um, a lot of the deeply rooted uh, racism that still exists uh, here in our in our country. You talk about your grandparents being uh, great role models for relationships. Uh, you talk about mom showing you tough love. Do you think it's mama's tough love, uh, the reason why you are the man you are today? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of my grandmother. I had a really close relationship uh, with my grandmother when I was a lot younger. I recently learned later on in life that my, my dad at the time was... Uh, in jail. And my grandmother kind of embraced me and started taking me to church, kind of stepping in. She would take me to the historic Wheat Street Baptist Church, which, which is also a part of the civil rights movement here in the city of Atlanta. And we used to sit in the back and I was eight years old, nine years old. Um, and I remember my grandmother figuring out that I needed glasses because she would point to someone in the choir that I couldn't see. And she would talk about the preacher uh, preaching and what it really meant. And I saw my grandmother serve uh, in various capacities. My family also faced a lot of hardships and, and dynamics, like my mother and father uh, obviously separated, divorced, and I grew up uh, without a without a father in my home. And so there were times when there were gaps in my uh, development where I was trying to figure things out. And my mom being a a black woman was trying to do the best she could uh, work multiple jobs and also take care of my, my sister and, and myself. And many times I, I missed uh, the, the moments to really understand why she was being so tough on me until later in life, realizing that she was pushing me to become a strong man that would be representative of what a, a black man should be in the context of our family. So I am very grateful to my mother. And I think the way that our story plays out, she did the best that she could. 
doing everything, being resilient, and also trying to take care of two roles in the household as mother and uh, father, and also uh, provide and push a young man to not succumb to his environment. Uh, so when I look back, uh, she's a shero. Oh, that's incredible. I mean, shout outs to the single moms. My mom was a single mom as well. And talk about just the pressure of providing for your family and wanting to be there, but you know, you got to take care of the grocery bills and, and everything. Did you find growing up in that environment more pressure to do what was right? Or were there moments where you just wanted to say, you know what? I I'm, no, I, I don't want to break that cycle. Yeah, well, I think it was it's a combination of all of those things. So like growing up, you're really trying to figure out what does it mean to be a young black male, having the talk with, you know, coaches and your uncle. And if you don't know what the talk is, the talk is kind of like a rites of passage that black parents have to have with their children or black grandparents uh, to prepare them for a world where they will be targeted and or treated differently from law enforcement or for walking in stores or what, whatever. Right. And so I can remember as early as age eight, having my mom tell me that if I was to walk in a store, keep my hands out of my pocket, or, you know, someone comes up to me and they ask me what I'm doing. If I'm buying something visibly show the money, or um, if I get pulled over to stick my hands out of the car when I start driving or keep my hands at 10 and two and all of these different ways of how, you know, trying to understand how to be, you know, and then you're dealing with the complexities of the environment. You know, you see poverty everywhere. You see, you know, your peers struggling, their families are, are struggling and, and there's not a, a, a lot of tangible examples of what, it means to overcome this. And so you're wrestling with this dichotomy of this is normal, but no, this isn't normal. It wasn't until I was uh, 20 years old, <clears throat> I had dropped out of high school, uh, went back as a, a fifth year senior. It was the most embarrassing time of my life. And I did it because I had met this guy experiencing homelessness on the street. He pulled me aside one day. He, he was like asking me that I go to this school. It was an alternative school. Right now, I lead an organization called Love Beyond Walls. And our organization actually supports students that goes to that school and is less than a mile away. This is the very school that I stopped going to. Right. Mm. And this guy tells me one day you're going to be a leader and, you know, just start talking to me about some random stuff that I had no clue why you would be talking to me about this, but it was in the company of some of my friends. And so I walked away and it was that in that moment, I got the curse to go back to school. I finished school, uh, go off to college because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and got in trouble at college. I was literally in a jail cell uh, at age 20 when this guy who had gotten uh, locked up for he, I think he had left his driver's license uh, somewhere. He got pulled over and they took him to jail. Um, he was he was actually in, deeply involved in the church and his dad was a pastor. And so I'm in this cell with him and he's talking to me about like, what am I doing here? And like talking to me about like the gospel and like telling me about God's love. And I'm like, dude, like we're in a, we're in trouble, you know? <laughs> and um, 
long story short, I mean, he shared his faith with me. He had gotten out before I did. Uh, the next morning, my mom came down. Uh, we go to court, and this judge is just handing out, like, sentences. It's a small rural town. So there's obviously some hints of racism there. And um, he gets to me. He calls me up. It's this huge crowd. And my mom is sitting there and he's looking at me and he's looking at my mom. He's looking at me. And he says, I don't know why I'm going to do this today, but I'm looking at your mom and I'm going to give you a second chance. And he drops all the charges. Mm. Um, when I leave there, I come back to Atlanta just trying to figure out, God, like, what, what do you want me to do with my life? And my friend at the time called me. He was like, man, I'm going to this Bible study. He was like, I like this girl that goes to this church. Would you just come? He wasn't even in church. He just wanted me to, to go. Yeah. yeah. I, was like, I was like, all right. And so I go within the church. We're sitting in this room and it's a small little men's group and women are separated. And he was just waiting till this was over. But I was really listening. Right. And um, I gave my life to to the Lord right there that night. And then from there, I got plugged into a, a church and I started meeting all of these these men who were like older in age and started sharing my story. And somehow I got connected to uh, ministry and got involved in leadership and, um, you know, had people pay for me to go to college, pay for my wedding. I start to discover parts of who I was. And when I look back, I started to see that all of those broken pieces serve a greater purpose. And so mm. uh, that's how I got to where I am. So you had mentioned it before about uh, love beyond walls. Uh, what I, a movement of doers is what I love and creating a world where no one is invisible. How did you come up with this idea, this concept, this organization? I got involved in ministry. I went to Bible college, uh, obtained a, a few degrees. And then I was serving on staff at a church and I was kind of frustrated. And I was every day I would go into my office. I was youth and young adult leader. I would walk out to the edge of the street and the building wasn't being used all throughout the week, only just like on a Sunday or if somebody had a practice in the middle of the week. And I was like, this is where all the action is. I need to be where the action is. And I became really frustrated with just like being constricted because I, I felt like God had allowed me to overcome so much in my life. And a lot of the people that I would be able to relate to would never come to the church, right? Or never like enter into the doors. We always talked about how love was powerful. And I started to think, well, what if we take that love beyond walls? And so my wife and I, you know, started going downtown underneath bridges because a part of my story too is when I was 16 and a half years old, uh, I experienced homelessness. I was sleeping in parks and like over friends' houses and Teachers didn't understand why I would fall asleep in class, not understanding like I was getting dressed out of the trunk of my car and all that. And so we started just building relationships with people in the heart of the city. And I'll never forget, I was um, having breakfast with one of my friends. His name was Kurt. He lived behind a, a, an abandoned building in the heart of the city. And for the first time in three months, Kurt told me his story. He says, you want to know how I became homeless? I was like, yeah, he says, I was in a car accident and I lost my wife and my kid and I was the only mm. one to survive. 
I started drinking alcohol and I could no longer function on my job. I lost everything and I ended up back here. And me, I'm like, yo, let me try to, you know, use some of my contacts to get you off the streets. And he was like, I don't want to stay in the shelter. There's a shelter about uh, two miles away. It has 500 men that sleep in chairs and it's only one restroom. He says, as a matter of fact, I probably won't get any sleep because I'll be staying up all night. Uh, trying to protect everything I own and possess in his bag. He says, I bet you, if you go and live there, you probably would be on the backside of this uh, building with me because it's more comfortable outside than it is mm. in some of our shelters. And I'll never forget that. I rode all the way home, got home. It was November, so it was starting to get really cold. Uh, the temper were, temperature was starting to drop. And I'm sitting at dinner with my wife, my kids, my two young kids at the time. My wife goes, what's wrong? Something's obviously wrong with you. And I say, um, Kurt challenged me today. Like, he said, I should live on the streets. Now, Kurt had no knowledge that I had lived like this when I was a teenager. I told my wife, I said, I believe God wants me to, like, walk in the shoes of people that you know, we were serving. She's what do you, she says, what do you mean? I said, I think I'm supposed to make myself uh, homeless and live on the streets. And she says, what? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she says, what do you mean? I said, yeah, just like if with your permission, kids permission, I would just live on the streets. Long story short, my wife uh, dropped me off underneath a bridge uh, in the, I think, probably four or five days before Christmas. And um, my family allowed me to live on the streets for a little over a month. And so wow. I ate out of trash cans, begged for money, uh, was put out of shelters, uh, documented the entire, entire experience and using that time to advocate and bring attention to the realities of what people suffer through uh, when they are on the other side of the experience of homelessness. Burn donated clothes that people brought underneath bridges and use them as firewood because there was no firewood. Um, you know, having to walk tons and tons of miles to try to figure out how you're going to use a restroom or being put out of restaurants because you asked for a cup of water or having you know, business professionals walk across the street or uh, shelter workers telling me, don't get mad because you chose this life, not even realizing that I wasn't actually homeless at that moment. And so that was the start of Love Beyond Walls. You know, at the end of that campaign, I had built such great relationships and used technology to tell these stories. We ended up getting about 12 people off of the streets underneath the bridge, uh, reuniting people with family members, connecting them to programs. And that was kind of the, the origin of Love Beyond Walls, what it means to take Love Beyond Walls and, and be present and proximate with people uh, who society deems invisible. It's amazing to think that one missed paycheck or one incident where a car accident really could be that that difference between someone being homeless and someone not being homeless. And I think a lot of us live under that false pretense that, oh, we're fine. It's fine. That would never happen to us. And yet, it could, and, and compassion sometimes just seems to be lacking overall. For you, what has been a, a moment where you thought, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is the sweet spot. This is what God intended for me to do. In the moment of, of being underneath the bridge, having so many people have the scales fall off their eyes, so to speak, as it relates to the false perceptions of what it means to be uh, without an address. 
uh, because homelessness itself is not monolithic. Everybody has their own story, how they arrived into the plight. And many times there are myths that persist about what it means to be poor and or without an address. You know, I wanted to uh, create this sense of educational awareness, but also creating community around individuals that we really build relationships with. Uh, because for me, you know, I remember uh, Mr. Boer, you know, talking to me when I was living out of my car in a park, uh, which was my friend's father who told me that God had a purpose for my life and that I would be a leader one day. And I remember standing at Mr. Moore's funeral when he passed away, looking into the, the audience as I was able to say words and realize that Mr. Moore lived his life in a way that was proximate and present with the people who were overlooked in society. And so that's uh, kind of like the, the core and the heartbeat of what it means to, to be a part of a movement of doers. What does it mean to be doers of the word or doers of a goodness in the world instead of just like theorizing and sitting around talking about it. I mean, having that tangible presence uh, can make a, a world of difference. We've seen people who were uh, families living in cars, get stable housing. We've seen uh, brothers who were out of touch with their children for a number of years be reunited with their uh, children. We've seen people who go from, who went from corporate America down to uh, absolutely nothing, get rehired again. I've seen people get the access to their identification cards and, and all in the context of what it means to bring people together, uh, which is my core message, that we can do more together against the ills that plague our communities than we can apart. Love Beyond Walls was started what year? It was started in 2013. So from day one of 2013 to where you are now, how have you seen change and growth within the organization? Man, we've gotten over 500 people off the streets. Uh, we've mobilized thousands, tens of thousands of people. Uh, here recently, uh, we launched a campaign called Love Sinks In, um, uh, putting hand-washing stations out uh, in the streets for people experiencing homelessness to have access to hand-washing because that was one of the critical things uh, we started in the city of Atlanta. And now we have uh, hand-washing stations in 72 cities across the country. You know, I've gotten the chance to uh, launch the first museum in the United States that represents homelessness out of a shipping container called Dignity Museum. Yeah. Um, we've educated a lot of people. We've done documentaries. Here recently, I just um, released two books uh, centered around the things that I talk about often to groups of people. Uh, one is called I See You, How Love Opens Our Eyes to Invisible People. And the other one is When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. Currently, I'm working on a children's book uh, related to homelessness uh, to educate uh, young people about what it means to see others, that mm -hmm. every single person has worth and value, uh, regardless of their uh, so social location. I like to also say that people without an address are our neighbors, right? Uh, just because someone doesn't have an address does not mean that they're not our neighbor. And I like to talk about what it means to uh, be about the whole community. Going forward, you know, I'm hoping that Lubbyan Walls continues to, uh, you know, fight against ordinances and laws that criminalize what it means to be homelessness, uh, homeless or educate more people about how they can tangibly uh, take action 
actionable steps in the context of their community. It doesn't just have to be Atlanta, but all across the country. And um, to continue to create innovative campaigns that will cause people to think of how to repurpose and reimagine how we use excess around us to actually solve issues and problems, which is one of the things that we've done really well. This is the Why Me Project podcast, so it is that time <laughs> we reflect on your life. Is there any moments where you asked, why me? Whether it's in a valley, things weren't going so well, or a mountaintop? I had launched this campaign uh, with Love Beyond Walls where I lived on top of a bus uh, that was donated to our organization for a month in a little tent because I wanted to retrofit it uh, to create a mobile barbershop and shower mm. for people experiencing homelessness. And at the end of the campaign, we mobilized about 500 people to get involved. And I didn't know where we would get barbers and beauticians. And somebody saw the story on the news and reached out to us and said, hey, there's this barber school. I go up to the barber school. Barber instructor introduces us to this guy named Jamil. Jamil was 27. He comes, starts to volunteer and cut hair on our bus and uh, help us groom people experiencing homelessness. And I asked him, I said, Jamil, why are you doing this? He says, because I haven't seen my dad in 10 years uh, because he's homeless and I'm hoping to one day run into him. Well, uh, three months later, we ran into Jamil's father. He was able to make his own father over on the bus. And to date, his dad wow. has been in the program and has been off the streets uh, for a little over four years. And and that's kind of like a, a why me moment, because sometimes I get visions about things to do uh, that may be really radical, uh, but they have a greater purpose. Uh, when I yield myself to uh, just serving humanity. As we always say, before you judge, you walk a mile in a man's shoes. And, and this man did so at Love Beyond Walls and at I'm Terrence Lester on all the socials. Terrence, my friend, appreciate you taking some time and uh, sharing your heart today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you all. It really is true, though, Holly. If you if you want to know where someone's come from, walk a mile in their shoes. And he did that. And I mean, hats off because it's just I, I would love to say, oh, yeah, I would totally do it. And then uh, I, I would last a day, not a month. I am just so impressed with his resolve to do what he can to make a positive change in his community and, and beyond. And he has such a calm demeanor. I just you can tell that he is walking in what God called him to do. He's just right. at peace with it. And I, I loved this conversation. Well, and, and it's good because it's like, oh, yeah, so you created this uh uh, this organization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I also did this museum. Oh, by the way, I also wrote two books. Oh, by the way, I'm also doing a kid's book. I'm like, yeah, I put my shoes on this morning and I was really excited. What have I done with my life? We can't compare yeah. though, as God has different plans for all of us. And I'm just, I'm so excited for what he has in store for Terrence and his family as well. Yeah. I can only imagine his kids seeing what he's doing and how that is really creating some incredible leaders for this next generation. Thank you to Nathaniel for sending in the uh, the idea of talking to Terrence today. Uh, why me project at outlook.com. Find us on all the socials, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or the Twitter. And then we also have all the places for our podcast, Holly. Yeah, absolutely. So wherever you get your podcast, make sure you look for us. Why me project. And of course, head to faithstrongtoday.com. Yeah.